The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And if you could turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, As you know, Todd's gone today. He'll be gone again next week. Bob Scott will be preaching then. And the week after that, uh, Dan Freeman will be preaching. We're going to continue the series on sanctification. So we've each got a different topic to preach on in sanctification. Uh, mine is sanctification and worldliness. The title of the message today is, Why Not Love the World? And the text is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. What we're going to do is we're going to take a sobering look at the love that God hates. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll pray and and dig into it. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with humble hearts, Lord. We desire to honor you. We desire to glorify your Son. I just pray that as we look at this text today, Lord, we would Lay our hearts bare, Lord, that you would do our open heart surgery on us this morning. This is a very hard subject at times to look at. And I just pray that we would be submissive to your word, that we would put ourselves under the authority of Scripture and desire to be doers of the word, not forgetful hearers, not those who just hear your word and walk away, but those who do your word, who put it into practice. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to be sanctified. And your word tells us we're to be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. Help us to be sanctified through your word, Father. We give this service over to you in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, that's the question we're going to grapple with. Why not love the world? Why not love the world? And some may hear that and say, well, wait a minute. Actually, aren't we supposed to love the world? I mean, they'll point to verses like John 3.16 and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? Or they'll say, look at 1 Timothy 4.4. Paul says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So passages such, such as this may give us pause to think, Well, are we supposed to love the world? But then you have passages such as ours, in 1 John 2.15 or James 4.4 that clearly state that we're not to love the world. So how does one reconcile this? You may say, well, maybe if you go to the original language and you look at the word that's used for love in John 3.16, the word that's used for love in 1 John 2.15, the word that's used for world in each, it doesn't help us because the exact same word, agape, or a form of agape, is used in both instances. Or cosmos, cosmos, 
the same Greek word for world is used in both instances, so that doesn't help us. So how do we determine the difference in what's being said here? I mean, obviously, the words are being used differently, just like English. They're being used differently. Well, all we have to do is remember the context of the passages. We must always take the context of a passage into account. Context is king. You've probably heard it said, a text without a context is a what? A pretext. That's right. And if you don't know what a pretext is, it's just a reason or an excuse used to hide the real reason for something. You can take any passage out of the Bible and make it say anything you want. Always make sure that when you teach a passage of Scripture, you're teaching it in its proper context. I remember when I was in California, one of our assignments in seminary was we had to go to a church in our neighborhood, just pick a church, sit down and listen to the sermon, and we had to outline it and write everything about it. I got in there, I sat down, and the pastor threw a, a scripture text up on the board, on the screen, similar to this. He, he read this, the text, and then he started talking about how if we pray for something like a limousine, we should be able to get it and just, you know, I'm like, what is he talking about? I, had to, I was like, I had to get up and get out of there. But he just took this text and took it out of context to say what he wanted it to say. We can't do that. If we consider our passage in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, as well as John 3, 16, within the appropriate context, we would see that in our passage, John is talking about the evil world system. He's talking about what you might call, you might have heard called the zeitgeist, or the the spirit of the age. That's what he's talking about. If you look at John 3, 16, you see that John's talking about the people of the world, the lost souls of the world. God so loved them. So you can see how when the text is placed in its proper context, the answer is simple. It comes out easily. So the question goes back then, are we supposed to love the world? Well, yes and no. We are supposed to love the lost world with a self-sacrificing love, just like Christ did. We have a new nature, okay? You look at the nature, you can go and look at the nature of the one doing the loving. God's nature is perfect and holy. When he loves, his love transforms the object. Our nature before Christ is wicked and sinful. When we love the world, we're changed by the object. He changes the object, we're changed by the object. But we have a new nature as Christians. So we are to love the world, the lost world. We're to love the lost world, wanting to see them come to Christ. But we're not to love the spirit of the age. We're not to love the sinful system of the world. We've got to be careful that we're not dragged away and enticed by the ways of the world. We're not to be like Demas, who we find in Scripture. Demas is probably one of the saddest individuals in the Bible. He's... He was a companion of Paul the Apostle. At the end of his life, Paul writes this this letter to his beloved Timothy, his, his son in the faith. He writes this letter to Timothy, and in this letter he gives Timothy instructions on various things. He he encourages him to stand strong in the face of opposition, not to be ashamed of the gospel. 
to preach when it's popular and when it's not popular. This is Paul's final letter before he dies. And at the end of this letter, he urges Timothy to make every effort to come to him. And then he says these chilling words in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is so sad because, as I said, Demas was a close companion of Paul. We hear of him three times in Scripture. We hear of him in Colossians 4.4. Here he's mentioned along with Luke and some of Paul's other companions. Things are going good. He's, he's coming along with, with Paul. And then we hear of him in Philemon 1.24 as one of Paul's fellow workers. He's this, this great companion of Paul. And then we hear of him here in 2 Timothy, as one who deserted Paul because he loved this present world. This should serve as a stark warning to each and every one of us. We don't want to be counted with Demas. We don't want it to be said of us on our gravestone, he deserted Christ because he loved this present world. In our text this morning, we're going to look at three reasons we should not love the world. And we're going to do this so that we can be intentional in striving for practical holiness, in striving for sanctification in the area of worldliness. We'll see that we should not love the world because of our condition in Christ, in verse 15. Then we'll see that we should not love the world because of the world's condition outside of Christ, in verse 16. And then finally, we'll see that we should not love the world because of the end condition of both. So, before we dig into these three reasons, we need to just take a look here at the actual prohibition given in verse 15a. Look at what John says here, right? In verse 15, the first half of verse 15, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. So here we see John state, Do not love the world. And the combination of the do not with that imperative, which here is love, it usually indicates an action that's in progress and it must be stopped. That's usually what it indicates. That would indicate to us that John assumes that his readers are guilty of loving the world and he's urging them to stop. However, the fact that John's writing to fellow believers here, it's more likely that John is urging them to be on guard against this rather than to stop doing it. With that being said, there were probably some within that group that he was writing to who were truly loving the world and he was telling them to stop. But here he's focusing on believers and saying, be on guard against this. Now notice the wording he uses. It says, do not love the world. This brings to mind a very intimate bond. And using the word love, John puts forth the idea of this, this strong intimate relationship. It can't be easily broken. The word used carries the idea of giving all of one's self to, all of one's affections, all of one's favor. So don't give all of your favor, all of your attention, all of your time to the world, or the things of the world. Don't be in a strong, intimate relationship with the spirit of this age, with the system, with the things of this world. Now, after giving this bold command for the believer not to love the world system or the things that it has to offer, he expounds on this. He, he essentially 
exegetes the text, and he begins to show us three reasons why believers are not to love the world or the, the worldly system. So let me go ahead and read this. Since it's a short passage, I'm going to read it again, and then we'll look at these reasons. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the first reason explained here by John why we're not to love the world is because your condition in Christ. Don't love the world because of your condition in Christ. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those who have a deep affection for the world system give evidence to the fact that they are not truly saved. The text says the love of the Father is not in him. If you claim to be a Christian and yet you have a deep affection for the world or the spirit of the age, then God's love is not abiding in you. And thus, you're not a Christian. It's interesting to note here that John is emphasizing the sovereignty of God and salvation here. Notice he says, the love of the Father. He doesn't say the love for the Father. The love of the Father is not in you. Now you may have the love of the, for the Father, that's true, but you only have that love because the Father has first loved you, right? 1 John 4, 19. So in saying the love of the Father, John's pointing out the sovereignty of God in all of it. It puts salvation right back where it belongs, in the hands of God. Remember, ultimately, you didn't choose to love God apart from the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in your life. No, you were unable to do anything apart from Him. Remember, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, it says, You were dead, no signs of life whatsoever. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to what? According to the course of this world. Of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in who? In believers? No. In the the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This was your previous condition. But the text goes on to tell us in verse 4 that God because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. He did the loving. He put this love in your heart. And thus, if that love is there, there's no room for the love of the world. If you love the world and you still claim to love God, you're just deceiving yourself. You're not submitting to the authority of Scripture. For you to love him, he must first love you and put that love in you. And the text here tells us clearly that if you love the world, he has not done that. Thus, you do not know him at all. Actually, you hate him. If the love of the Father is not in you, then you hate God. He's your enemy. That may sound harsh, but James says it this way in James 4.4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility? And that word could be translated enmity or hatred towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. So are you an enemy of God? If you've cozied up to the world, then my friend, you show yourself to be an enemy of God. You harbor hatred for God. You may say you love God, but the God you love is not the God of the Bible. It's the God of your own making. Does that mean that Christians will not struggle with worldliness? No, it doesn't mean that at all. They will struggle. We will struggle with, with worldliness, but we, we repent, we turn from it. But we shouldn't be controlled by these things. We shouldn't be controlled by worldly passions, worldly desires. It's not who you are anymore. We're new creatures in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Right? We're new creatures. You have a, the Word of God abiding in you. Psalm 119.11. You have overcome the world. James 4.7. 1 John 4.4. 4. You have an increasingly intimate relationship with the Father. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. Your hearts have been transformed by grace. You cannot love the world. The text is telling us that anyone who does love the world demonstrates the love of the Father is not in him. The Christian does have the love of the Father in him. Your condition is new. So if you're given over to the things of the world and you say that you're born again, then I would just say stop dabbling in the things of the world. You can't live on both sides of the fence. You have a new character. To do that is madness. It's insanity. Because that's not who you are anymore. So according to the text, the first reason we're not to love the world is because our condition is positionally holy. We're not practically holy yet, but positionally, before God, we're holy. We have the love of the Father in us. And this condition is in complete opposition to the world's condition. And that's the contrast that John shows us as he moves to the next reason. The second reason we should not love the world. And that reason is because of the world's condition outside of Christ. Don't love the world because you have a new condition in Christ, which is in complete opposition to this, the world's condition outside of Christ. For all, and he says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See that? He's showing the contrast. You have a new condition that's, in, that's not characterized by the condition of the world. And then he, he lays out the characteristics of the world's condition here. And in doing so, he gives us three World, worldly things, three characteristics of worldliness that don't come from the Father. Thus, they should not be characteristic of you as a Christian. So let's just take them one by one and look at, are these characteristic of you? Because they shouldn't be. We have here in the text the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And as a side note, this is nothing new. These three categories have identified the desires of the sinful world all through history. We can go back to the garden. Genesis 3, 6. The same three categories. It says this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that it, the tree was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life, she took from its fruit and ate. 
And she gave also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So this goes all the way back to the garden. We can also see the same three things dangled before Christ by Satan. But Christ, praise God, didn't and could not sin. His, so- his sovereign impeccability, in his sovereign impeccability, Christ was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He didn't sin, he couldn't sin. But the same three temptations were brought before him. So these three, these three culprits are nothing new with regard to the ways of the world. So let's just take them here and examine these each individually. First we have the lust of the flesh in verse 16. So what is the lust of the flesh? Well, first we need to define lust. The word that's used for lust is epithumia, and it can be used for a good desire or a bad desire. Sometimes in Scripture it's used for a good desire. So the word lust doesn't always mean something bad in Scripture. Sometimes it's talking about something good. But here it's talking about bad, evil desires. This is the lust of the flesh, the strong, inordinate, overwhelming desire of the flesh. Those desires that are not in line with your new nature, but are characteristic of the desires of your old nature. Now, the desires of your body aren't necessarily sinful, right? I mean, God created you with those desires. So they're not necessarily bad. The problem is that the debased nature of the human heart perverts and distorts all desires. That's the problem. The heart is the, is the issue. Worldliness doesn't just consist of these outward actions. That's just a manifestation of the heart. They're just evidence of the worldliness that's already within the heart. Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus tells us, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. So the lust of the flesh begins in the heart. And then Paul goes on to give us some outward manifestations of that inward heart condition. In Galatians 5, 19-21, he says, The deeds of the flesh are evident. These deeds are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And then he adds this little nugget, and things like these. That kind of encompasses pretty much everything. And things like these. All of these things come from the heart. So how's your heart? Do you dwell on impure things? Are you characterized by jealousy when someone else perhaps gets noticed at the job or in something that you thought you should have been noticed for? You get jealous? Is there constant strife in your relationships, whether in home, in the marriage, with your kids, with other people, constant strife? always arguing with your husband or wife because you want to be right? Do you constantly envy others who have things that you want? Maybe it's obedient children. You won't tell anybody this, but in your mind you're thinking, man, I wish my kids were like that. Or you see somebody that has the perfect spouse. I wish that was my spouse. That sin comes from the heart. 
Maybe you're characterized by idolatry. You know, you don't make a little wooden idol and bow down to it, but whatever has the affections of your heart more than God, is it your, your children maybe? Maybe your children are more important to you than God. And that shows in how you, you put them above God or your husband or your wife. What's your idol? This is the lust of the flesh, and it, it doesn't come from the Father, but from the world. Now, the next lust that John points out that's from the world is the lust of the eyes. Some of these, these three will at times blend together. So you've got the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. This lust is awakened by what you see. The eye, you may have heard it, the eye is the window of the soul. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So your eyes are essentially for you to see rightly. But be careful because just as anything else that's good, the eye can be used for evil. Your eyes are essentially the tool by which the lust of the flesh is fed. It begins to grow stronger until it carries out, it carries you away. And it brings forth sin. As you feed the lust of the flesh by what you look at, eventually it'll, it carries you away completely and it brings forth sin. And as we know, sin brings forth death. James 1.15 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, lust. then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So guard your eyes. Guard your eyes. This is so important. Be diligent and cautious as to what you allow to enter through your eyes. David, on his roof, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, he looks and he sees Bathsheba bathing. Instead of turning his eyes and going to God, he continues to look. And the lust of the flesh is being fed through the eyes until he's dragged away and he says, go get her. It's just too late. He's done. Because he continued to look upon this and the lust of his flesh just grew until it brought forth sin. Achan, Achan was in Jericho and he's looking upon all these riches that were in the ban. He's not supposed to take. He's looking upon them. He continues to look and he takes them, hides them in his tent. He was dragged into sin. Yeah, he hides them in his tent. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife. This woman was in the very moment of deliverance from the destruction of Sodom. And she turns and looks. That's where her heart was. She turned and looked back. I want to read this portion, this short portion of this book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle about Lot's wife. Listen to this. It says, That look was a little thing, but it told of secret love of the world in Lot's wife. Her heart was in Sodom, though her body was outside. 
She had left her affections behind when she fled from her home. Her eye turned to the place where her treasure was, as the compass needle turns to the pole. And this was the crowning point of her sin. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I ask the special attention of my readers to this part of our subject. I believe it to be the part to which the Lord Jesus particularly intends to direct our minds. I believe he would have us observe that Lot's wife was lost by looking back to the world. Her profession was at one time fair. It seemed legitimate, but she never really gave up the world. She seemed at one time on the road to safety. But even then, the lowest and deepest thoughts of her heart were for the world. The immense danger of worldliness is the grand lesson which the Lord Jesus means us to learn. Oh, that we may all have an eye to see and a heart to understand. Remember the sin of Lot's wife. She was no murderess, no adulteress, no thief, but she was a professor of religion, and she looked back. Don't look back. Guard your eyes from the things of the world. Don't just allow your eyes to fall upon anything with no filter. That's insanity. That's crazy. So how do we do this then, Joe? Well, I could do this. I could make a list and say, okay, don't look at this. Don't look at this. Don't watch these movies. Don't watch these TV shows. That's not helpful. That's just legalism. But there are some things we can do. First of all, I want you to remember this Latin phrase. Quorum Deo. Quorum Deo. And what it means is, before the face of God. Before the face of God. You see, all aspects of your life, from your private thoughts to your public words, everything is quorum Deo. It's all before the face of God. Keep that in mind. As you approach entertainment or media, Keep that in mind. And then, let me give you some real practical things here, okay? I want to give you some practical questions to ask before you put anything before your eyes. This is just some questions to consider, okay? I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't watch. I'm going to give you these questions to ask as you consume media or you consume anything through your eyes. These questions are broken down into three groups. You've got time questions, content questions, and heart questions. Okay? First of all, here's some time questions. Ask yourself this. After investing the time to view this, will I look back on it as time well spent? As I said, I'm not telling you how much time you should spend watching this. I'm just giving you these questions. I simply want you to ask yourself these questions and pray about it. Talk it over with your spouse. Talk it over with your, your friends. Be intentional about the time you have, the time that God has given you. Be a good steward of that time. Don't just allow time to pass. Don't just waste it. Another good evaluation of your time throughout the week is to ask this. In the last week, how much time have I spent on spiritual disciplines, on reading my Bible? on praying, on evangelism, on building relationships or serving the local church compared to the time spent consuming media. So let's move on. Those are the time questions. There's more. Uh, I, I did a book review on a book called Worldliness. 
a couple months ago? These questions can be found in that book and more. These are just some. So let's move from the time question to the content questions. As you view these things, ask yourself, what worldview or philosophy of life does this program or this film promote? What worldview or philosophy does this promote? What does this film or program glamorize? What is the view of man's nature? Do they view man as inherently good or inherently bad? How does it view and present sin? Is sin identified as wrong or is it celebrated and and marginalized? Are the consequences of sin shown to be negative or is sin rewarded? Here's a good one. What is the God-ordained, or what is the view of God-ordained authority figures in this program? Are they made to look inept, ridiculous, foolish? Are God-ordained roles within the family flipped? They're flipped upside down and made to look better than God's design. Another one, does violence appear as just a natural part of the story or do they just add violence? It's just used gratuitously to entertain. What's the sexual content of what you're viewing? Is there nudity or seductive dress? Are there images, language, or humor that are sexually impure? Now, this, this may seem like a lot of work. You're saying, man, Joe, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But if we're to be holy and sanctified, these are the kind of questions we need to ask. I'm not even saying that some of these things, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch them. I'm just saying, ask yourself these questions. Then you determine, am I going to watch this? If I am going to watch something with some of this in there, am I going to explain to my, my children what's going on here? Just be discerning. Do the hard work. No one else can give you the answer to these questions or the limitations to these things. This is something you determine through prayer and an honest biblical assessment of these things. So you ask the time questions, the content questions, and now finally, you ask the heart questions. Why do you want to watch this program or film? What do you find entertaining about it? Don't just watch it numbly. Ask yourself before you even watch it, okay, why do I want to watch this? Am I just seeking to escape from something that I actually should be facing right now? Am I seeking comfort and relief that can really only be found in God? Why do I want to watch this? Am I watching just because I'm bored? What does that say about your heart? You're just watching it because you're bored. Now, using this guide will kind of help us to navigate through worldly entertainment, help us to be intentional, guard ourselves. It'll help you guard your eyes. We want our eyes to be filled with the things that glorify and magnify Christ. In Philippians 4.8, Paul tells us to dwell on or ponder certain things, okay? And he says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence 
And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So try to line, excuse me, your entertainment up with the things that you can be sure are from the Father. Not with the things that fall under the lust of the flesh or the eyes. They're not from the Father, but they're from the world. Don't love them. Once again, I'm not telling you, not, don't watch movies, don't watch TV. I'm just saying, ask these questions. I watch movies, but I'm saying we need to be diligent. We need to be active in guarding ourselves and ask these hard questions. Now, the last characteristic that John gives us of world, worldliness is the boastful pride of life. This is the arrogance that arguably motivates all other sin, okay, including the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. It's, it seeks to elevate self over everyone else, the boastful pride of life. We all know how ugly pride can be. We notice it in other people, right? But it can be ugly inside us too. It's ugly. We don't like it. But you know what? The prideful, arrogant individual will at some point be brought low by God. They will. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, we hear Jesus give an account of two men who went into the temple to pray. One was this proud, arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee, and the other was a humble, repentant tax collector who was just broken over his sin. The passage tells us that this humble, broken man went home justified rather than this proud, arrogant man. Super religious guy. He didn't go home justified. The broken, humble man did. It states in verse 14, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, exaltation of one's self does not come from the Father, but from the world. As Christians, as we just heard sung today, we understand that the only thing we have to boast in is Christ. Don't be caught up in a, in a boastful, prideful way of life. This is not characteristic of a child of God. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Strive to be humble. Draw near to God, and He will draw near, near to you. Confess your sin. Strive for sanctification. This is brought up all throughout Scripture. James 4, 8 through 10, we read, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So to combat pride, you must humble yourself. And in doing so, you're not giving in to the boastful pride of life. So in answering the question, why not love the world? We've seen in the text that we should not love the world because your condition in Christ, is your new creature in Christ, Next, we, we should not love the world because the world's condition outside of Christ is in complete opposition to yours. And now we see in verse 17, John gives us a final reason why we should not love the world, and that's because of its end condition. 
Both of our end condition. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So don't love the world because it's temporal. There's, there's absolutely nothing in this world that will last. Nothing. Even the good things are passing away. Think about it. Every material thing, every relationship, every desire is passing away. All of us in here have had relationships where a family member passes away. We, we, when we were kids, we never thought our parents were going to die. We thought they were going to be around forever. And then they die. So everything is passing away. Everything is temporal. In 1 Peter 1, 24-25, we read, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then again in James 4, 13-15, in the context of arrogant boasting, James reminds us of the frailty and brevity of life. He proclaims, now to you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor, a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Don't cling to this dying world. Don't be enamored by its riches or its lustful passions. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, Bring the pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We need to focus on the things that will last. Those who love the world and the things of the world are like someone who's concerned about decorating their room on the Titanic or moving around their furniture, even, when, even after they hit the iceberg. They're moving around their furniture. They're, they're wanting to make sure they get the right pictures. That's what it's like when we're living for the world. This is folly. The lust of the worlds are passing away. So what does it profit for us to strive after them? In Mark 8, 36, Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Now, after giving these, these stark warnings here, look at how John ends this portion of the text. Look at verse 17. 
The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So after going through all this, after exhorting the reader not to love the world and then giving them several reasons by way of contrast, by contrasting the character of the Father with the character of the world, he closes out with this final contrast. The world and the things of the world are temporal, while the Father and those who do the will of the Father, those who are born again, live forever. Remember that. Live in accordance with who you are in Christ. You're alive in Christ. You will live forever with Christ. Live for that. Those who do not know Christ, those who love the world and the things of the world will live forever to be sure, but their existence will be apart from Christ in hell for eternity. They will die in their sins. They will spend eternity in hell. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, if everything I've said here and you're like, this is crazy, what's wrong with this, what I'm doing? You're, you're, you're living in your sins and you will die and you will go to hell because you don't know Christ. You need to turn from your sins in repentance. Turn from your sins and place your trust completely in Jesus Christ for salvation. And then you will be born again. The Bible says unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Once you're born again, you no longer live for the things of this world. But if you're here today and you're not born again, you're living completely for this world, you will die in your sins and go to hell. Repent. Please don't leave here today without trusting in Christ or talking to me or somebody else about how you can know more about Christ. As believers, our hearts should ache for the lost. We should pray for them and do everything we can to reach them. We need to be in the world as the light and salt, but we're not to be of the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this text, Lord. It was convicting as I wrote this, and I just pray that you would help us to navigate through uh, this world, Lord, that we would love you more than we love anything else, that we would put you above everything, that we would strive to be holy, we would strive for sanctification, that it would not be said of us that we departed, deserted you because of our love for this present world, Lord. Help us to encourage one another, to lift one another up in prayer, to be growing in holiness and to be growing in our love for one another. We love you. Help us to, to show that love in, in how we live. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.